please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning's sermon is entitled Free People Part 2, or God's Free People Part 2. And we're going to be exploring this morning, hearing from Jesus about a Christian view of slavery. So the verses in our text we'll focus on are verses 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy word. This is his inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. 1 Peter 2, 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth now and the thoughts, the questions, and the reflections on each one of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's 1844, and Patrick Hughes Mell, a so-called Baptist minister, anonymously published a tract to show that slavery is, quote, not a moral evil. In the tract, he claims to, quote, recognize no code of morals except that which is contained in the sacred scriptures. And then in this tract, he proceeds to cite passages both from the Old and the New Testaments, proving in his mind that slavery is directly sanctioned by the Holy Bible. Which makes me wonder, how is it that so many white slave owners and white preachers and, in fact, dominant society as a whole for so long use the Bible to prove that slavery is, quote, not a moral evil? How could this be? What does the Bible teach about slavery? Well, in the move over about 75 to 100 years to try to abolish slavery, the movement was known as abolition, and the people that were involved in attempting to abolish slavery were called abolitionists. Some of them, because of how entrenched southern slaveholders were in their view of the Bible, despaired of ever using the Bible to prove their case, and they tossed it. Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave-turned-statesman, journalist, and preacher, took the opposite approach. Here's advice that he gave in a speech delivered in New York, New York, 1859. What do you do when you are told by slaveholders of America that the Bible sanctions slavery? Do you throw your Bible into the fire? Do you sing out, no union with the Bible? 
Do you declare that a thing is bad because it has been misused, abused, and made bad use of? Do you throw it all away on that account? No, I say. You press it into your bosom all the more closely. You read it all the more diligently and prove from its pages that it is on the side of liberty and not on the side of slavery. And this is the advice I intend to pursue this morning from a great hero and father in the faith and an excellent preacher, Frederick Douglass. I want to press the scriptures into my bosom. I want to read it, and I want you to read it all the more diligently and to prove from its pages that it indeed preaches a gospel of freedom. So this message is part two, as I said, of my sermon from last week, speaking of the free people of God. So I want you to hear from Jesus this morning in answer to this question, what does the Bible say about slavery? What is a Christian view of slavery? And in discussing this topic, I hope to answer three questions. What does the Old Testament say about this topic? What does the New Testament say about this topic? And then finally, what does our specific passage say about this topic? And I'll conclude with a couple of reasons why I think this topic is relevant for our lives today. So first of all, what does the Old Testament teach about slavery? Well, in the beginning, the world was perfect. There was no slavery. There was no oppression. There was hierarchy. There was order. There was diversity. There was authority. God was in authority. God had placed man in the garden, and God gave man authority over his wife and his family, and they were given in a frictionless, sinless context, the freedom to serve God and to extend his kingdom through the world. But when sin enters the picture, we have not only Eve taking the fruit and giving it to her husband and the expulsion from the garden, but shortly thereafter, Cain murders Abel and oppression and slavery begin. So fast forward to the nation of Israel. We see many laws in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy regarding and Leviticus regarding slaves. Why didn't God eliminate slavery? It's a question that I've asked and perhaps you've wondered or some of your friends have wondered. Why do we see it mentioned so many times in the Old Testament? Now it's true that God in the Old Testament gave slaves a lower status than regular Israelite individuals. But it's interesting, when you, when you study the scriptures carefully, you notice that the protections given to Israelite slaves, that, that the institution of slavery, if I may say so, in the Old Testament was so good, quote-unquote, that it was not slavery in any ordinary sense. But it functions in the Old Testament like a total revamping of the idea of slavery. It would be as if, if Israel had slaves, and say Canaan or Babylon had slaves, you wouldn't be able to know they were talking about the same thing. So radically different was that practice in Israel. The first thing that we see in Scripture about slaves in Exodus 21, verse 1, is that slavery in Israel was, was a program designed to be temporary. So Exodus 21 tells us that a, no slave would serve more than six years 
and the perfect number seven, seven is the number of completion. In the seventh year, the slave would be set free if he wanted to be. The second interesting uh, feature of Old Testament slavery that's unique is that if anyone steals a man or a woman in order to sell him as a slave, which is exactly what happened in our country, that man is to be put to death. Man stealing for the purpose of profiting from his labor and selling him to someone else is a capital offense in Old Testament Israel. The third thing that we find that's unique about Old Testament slavery is that if a thief cannot repay his debt, he might be sold into slavery. But the offender, the thief, could be rescued from his, his penalty of servitude by a friend or a relative who would be willing to pay the, the value of the remaining period of labor that he owed. This is a system that is similar to our modern system of parole, except that the individual that would pay the offense would immediately become, a, uh, the, uh, the debt would be paid to the individual who was stolen from, and that individual would become a private parole officer in Israel. Those are three interesting features that show that there is a redemptive, humane, even holy aspect, if you will, to the Old Testament understanding of slavery. But beyond these three examples, there's an overarching or kind of an umbrella concept over all the references in slavery in the Old Testament, and it is this. Almost every time that slavery is mentioned, Israel is reminded that they too were once slaves in Egypt. Built in, time after time, in the law and in the prophets, when slavery is mentioned, when aliens are mentioned, when strangers and sojourners are described, when the poor and the destitute and the widow, the fatherless, come up in the pages of Scripture as they do as a group again and again and again, their special treatment is enjoined on the basis of the fact that you were slaves in Egypt and God had mercy on you and so you too should have mercy on the poor and the widow and the alien and the stranger and the fatherless and the prisoner. Empathy was called for as a chief virtue in the matter of slavery in the Old Testament. So you might not be surprised to learn that when slaves in the American South during those 250 years or so in, when, in which slavery was legal, that when the Bible was given to slaves, they were normally given an edited version of the Bible. We wouldn't want the slaves to hear what God has to say about slavery. Slaveholders took pains or got people to take pains to eliminate the passages in the Bible that didn't support their particular approach to the oppressive, degrading, dehumanizing, evil, wicked, murderous practice of slavery. As a result of editing these passages out, we had the quote-unquote slave Bible, and here's the full title. Parts of the Holy Bible selected for use of the Negro slaves. Parts of the Holy Bible selected for use for the slave. 
That is to say, the parts that the slave owners want you to hear, not the part that God wants the slave owners to hear. But if you're not cutting parts out of the Bible, the Old Testament picture of slavery, on the whole, there are troubling passages. I'm not whitewashing those. On the whole, it's actually a very humane institution. Secondly, what about the New Testament? Setting aside our text in 1 Peter 2 for a moment, what's the the quick survey of the New Testament? Here's four key verses, and I want us to look these up. Verse number one is Luke 4.18. Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. Do a little Bible drill this morning. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. The passage begins at verse 16. When Jesus comes to his hometown, he's, he's asked to preach a sermon and in In response, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, verse 17, is given to him. He unrolls it, and this is just what happens to be the reading. By the way, this is a set reading for the synagogue, so I take this to be a minor miracle in which the Almighty God directed the Son of God to read for his first sermon this passage, this specific text in Isaiah. And what does it say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Luke 4.18 because he has anointed me, Mashiach, I am the Messiah, to do what? To to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the eschatological prophetic jubilee, the year when all the debts are released, And all the slaves are set free. This is the first sermon of the Messiah. Hallelujah. The slaves are free. Then let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're doing a quick survey of what the Bible says about slavery There's at least 40 texts in the New Testament that touch one way or another on slavery. We're just looking at four of them this morning. The first passage is Luke 4.18. The second is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, context in 1 Timothy is a warning against false teachers beginning at verse 3. And then Paul enters into a bit of a side conversation about the the goodness of the law. And the law in Paul means like the Ten Commandments. And Paul says the Ten Commandments are good if you use it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law, this is 1 Timothy 1.9, is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, meaning If you're keeping the Sabbath and honoring your parents and and not stealing and not lying and not murdering and not coveting, then you don't need the law. The law is is, like blood in your veins. You're, You're living for the Lord. But one of the functions of the law is to convict men, women, boys, and girls of sin. So when I say honor your parents, children, you should feel a little twinge because you haven't been. 
And when I say keep the Sabbath, or no, do not take the name of the Lord in vain, men, women, children, you should feel a little, oof. You're a lawbreaker in that sense. And that's what he's saying here. But notice the, the people that need the law. The unholy, the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and enslavers. So the law is for those who would capture and take men and women and put them into slavery. And if they don't repent, they will be judged forever in hell. That's what 1 Timothy 1 says. And they are listed along with homosexual practicing people, sexually immoral, adulterers, liars, perjurers, and whatever is contrary to sound doctrine, it says. The third verse and the fourth are both in the book of Galatians. We're doing a quick survey. These are just four kind of typical verses, if you will, I, th I think, of the New Testament's teaching on slavery. Turn, please, to Galatians 3. Just two more verses here, and then we'll jump back into our text. Galatians is sometimes known as the epistle of freedom, so you won't be surprised that we have many references to freedom and bondage in this letter. And in Galatians 3.28, Paul is talking about what happens in context that now that faith has come in the gospel. In Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God by faith. Baptism is the great equalizer. It eliminates many socially constructed categories by which we divide ourselves. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I heard it said by a preacher long ago, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And if, if there was a place, if there was a place for slavery in the South, in the 16, 17, 1800s, and in the North, if, theoretically, that slaveholder and that slave should be eating communion at the same table. It's the only way, and if that's not possible, if he hates him so much, or if he's degrading him so much, then there's something practically fundamentally wrong with that institution. Because Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. There is neither slave nor free in Christ. There is no male or female in Christ but you are all one in Christ. Because, why? Galatians 5, verse 1, the last verse in our survey. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This means that, as one pastor put it, the logic of the new creation in Christ provides freedom from slavery to sin, which is the prototype, it's the archetype of all other forms of slavery. See, there was no slavery in Eden. Slavery only became a reality when Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam, when Cain slew Abel, which is a form of oppression and murder common on plantations. So, while it's true that there are several passages in the Bible that describe a specific kind of 
relationship between the servant and the master. And our passage in 1 Peter, we'll see in just a moment, is one of those. John Piper puts it this way, where a Christian slave owner and a Christian slave obeyed all the New Testament teachings, the relationship was radically transformed. The master was transformed from an owner to one who saw himself primarily as owned by Christ, along with his slave. And the slave was transformed from property to co-heir, along with his master and a brother to the one whom he served. So it's true. And this is a challenge for Christians, and if you're a skeptic to the faith, or if you have friends that are skeptical of the faith, this is often a challenge that's thrown up against Christian belief. The New Testament never directly abolishes slavery. That's a challenge. But I believe that my survey has shown that if you were to consistently follow the plain teaching of Scripture, I haven't pulled any rabbits out of the hat, I haven't done any little Bible tricks here, I've just read the text and explained the text. If this scripture is consistently followed, slavery cannot continue as an institution. It's impossible. It has to change. Whatever economic engine that it represented would have to give way to something more humane, less degrading, less depersonalizing, less enslaving, if you will. That's what the New Testament teaches about slavery. I love this quote from Calvin. The Christian life is free of servitude, but a serving freedom. I'll repeat that. The Christian life is free of servitude. We're free of all rules. All bondages are, are removed in Christ. But it entails a serving freedom. I would insert my sermon from last week where I encouraged you and challenged you that you are servants of God in that respect. Okay, so our text then, 1 Peter chapter 2. Returning to our passage, what does 1 Peter chapter 2, 18, 19, and 20 teach us about slavery? We set the context of the Old Testament and the context of the New Testament. We did a, a massive Bible survey there in about 15 minutes. Our text emphasizes the importance for a servant or a slave of good behavior. Look at verse 20. What credit is it for you if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, when you practice good behavior and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter has referred this in terms of our behavior towards the king in verse 15. You see, doing good silences the foolish talk of people who would criticize the Christian faith. And I mentioned last Sunday that Christians are to be a kind of, kind of, chief example, a prime specimen of what humanity could look like in its best, if we put our best foot forward, particularly in these relationships with the government and with masters, so to speak, or employers. Doing good, you see, is the way all Christians are to act in a sinful world. We've been set free from the empty, foolish, vain traditions of our fathers of doing bad, doing evil all the time, piling up. Haven't you spent enough time doing that, he says in 1 Peter 4. Now we're free to do good. And this, this doing good is a kind of evangelism. It's a, it's a missionary effort. 
a servant or a slave in the ancient Roman Empire, was a missionary, according to Peter. And we know from statistics that a full quarter of the entire population of ancient Rome were listed as slaves. By focusing then on the slaves that comprised the Christian congregations in the dispersion to where Peter sends this letter, by encouraging them to do good, which meant that they were to live in a Christ-like way, even when they suffered at the hands of a cruel master, God would not only provide the slave or the servant grace to do that very thing, but the gracious outcome might result that Jesus Christ would be honored and the master himself might be changed. Not only then would the servant receive the victor's crown of salvation, he might receive two, one for himself and one for the one who was cruelly treating him. But the servant is called to endure patiently, he says. When Peter appeals to the patient suffering of a servant or a slave, I believe he is not referring to the kind of treatment that slaves received in America in the South in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. I think these are two radically different institutions. Now, there are similarities, but here are two major reasons why they are different. First, slaves in Rome were not racially determined. Slavery wasn't based in Rome, in the Roman Empire, on the color of your skin. You could be a white slave enslaved to a black man or a black slave enslaved to a white man. The point wasn't the color of your skin. It was your status as a Roman citizen. And Rome was composed of citizens from all the countries of the ancient world. Secondly, slaves in ancient Rome, because they were so numerous, functioned like hourly wage workers in some cases. In other cases, slaves could hold high positions in society. They had what one theologian called high-status jobs, including doctor, accountant, teacher, tutor, business manager, professional actor. All these professionals could have been slaves in ancient Rome. Now, can you imagine a white family in the South in the early 1800s, going to a black physician? It just wouldn't have happened. Or to a black man or woman who would do their taxes? I don't think so. So while Peter seems to make civil disobedience in this passage of an unusual case, I don't think he rules it out altogether. Because he says that you are to endure harsh treatment. He doesn't say you have to approve it, and he doesn't say you can't work to change it either. If the master was requiring you to sin directly against what God says in his word, the slave must not do that. And if the slave has to suffer for staying true to God, then he is being faithful, but he must not give in to unholy requests now, this is a bitter pill to swallow, I think, for people like you and me. We're prone to think that what we want is what we get. We live in the land of the free, after all, in the home of the brave. And if someone does me wrong, I know what my first reaction is. I'm going to get even. And I'll add a little bit, too. And Peter is saying that is not the spirit of Christ. 
the spirit of revenge and vengeance-seeking. It's not living and doing good, as Peter says, for the Lord's sake. We're to live for the Lord, to glorify and honor Him. But it doesn't mean that we can't work for justice, which I'll mention in a moment. So before I continue, I want to address a couple of concerns. I mentioned earlier that if the gospel were consistently applied, the institution of slavery would eventually, gradually disappear. If that's the case, some have asked the question, was the Civil War justified? Couldn't have Christians just gradually and consistently and patiently and prayerfully worked for the eventual ending of slavery without the shedding of blood? Now, I applaud William Wilberforce and the English Parliament and all the Houses of Lords and Commons and the King, which saw the ending of slavery without, without the shedding of blood in the Civil War sense. And that would have been wonderful if that were possible in America. But I ask you this. Would a woman trapped in the sex trade be asked to wait for the gospel to change the heart of the man who is repeatedly abusing her? Or should she and we, if we knew about it, take immediate police and coercive actions to rescue her from her oppression, even if it costs lives? I would if that was my daughter or my wife or my mother. And I think you would too. See, my own view is while the gradualism idea of the gospel has some appeal theologically, I ultimately believe, this is my opinion, that the Civil War was justified because slavery was so entrenched and had become such a dehumanizing, corrupt institution that the only thing that could change it was the bearing of arms. Which reminds me, I think we do a great job of remembering the injustices of King George III. No taxation without representation on July 4th, our day of independence. We remember our, our slavery to England so well, with such fanfare every year. We notice carefully, don't tread on me, those flags go flying. But for 250 years, we did far worse to our Christian brothers and sisters in this country who had different skin and a different country of origin than we. I wish we had the similar parades for them, celebrating the freedom that they procured at such a high cost. So my second observation before I conclude is this. Why do we need to delve into this topic if slavery was abolished more than 150 years ago? Why is it relevant today? Well, I just mentioned one reason. I think there's a disparity of appreciation of freedom in our country. We appreciate English freedom, freedom from England, freedom to be a self-governing people, but there isn't a corresponding celebration, in my opinion, that matches the national patriotic fervor of the freedom that the slaves procured gradually, as it turns out, but beginning at the end of the Civil War. So I think it's relevant in that sense. I also think that, relatedly, because of the deeply degrading way in which I feel the institution of slavery has stained our national conscience, 
It is not something that will easily go away. And there were pastors, lone voices in the wilderness, faithful Christian preachers who warned us of this even before we constituted ourselves a nation from the 13 colonies. That terrible compromise, the three-fifths compromise, forebode, I believe, for us centuries of difficulty and strife. We're still dealing with it today. An example I like to use here is the fact that my mother was born in 1944. On that same year, 1944, Sidney Poitier, coming from the Bahamas, knocked on the door of a woman's house in Miami where he had made his way as an extremely poor man of color, not an African-American, but a Bahamian-American. He found his way to Miami in the job of a delivery boy, and he knocked on the door of a white woman's house in 1944, the year my mother was born. And she answered the door and angrily said, your kind go to the back. So that makes it personal for me because that's not something I've ever had to experience. I've never been told to go to the back, nor has my mother been told to go to the back. We've had our own problems, but not that. So when slavery and Jim Crow and lynching come up in current discourse, as they do today, it seems almost every day, you need to know God's heart on this topic. This is a relevant topic and the elites are bandying it about and playing ping pong with this topic every single day, it seems, in social media and in the news. So here's my challenge. If you get labeled a progressive because you confront racist behavior, I will stand with you. And if you get labeled a racist because you refuse to endorse, for example, the ordination of a practicing homosexual, I will stand with you. And Christians consistently defy human categories, whether it be the category of racist or the category of progressive. And, and relatedly, even though slavery no longer exists per se in America, authority and hierarchy, diversity and submission continue, and their abuses. And so we see in the workplace, and in marriages, and in schools, and in hospitals, and in police departments, consistent good examples and bad examples of godly hierarchy, authority, subordination, and submission. Christians need to be the best human specimens in all of these spheres, whether you are the employee slash servant or the boss slash master. In each situation, you're looking for what the scripture says here in verse 19. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? I'm sorry, yeah, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, 1 Peter 2, 19. When mindful of God, that phrase, I want to emphasize, it literally means with a conscience towards God with the mind of Christ. This is my challenge to you. This is why we need to hear this topic. You need the mind of Christ when entering political debates, and I want you to debate these things charitably, listening to your opponents, 
construing their words in the best possible way, but not putting up with baloney either. With a conscience towards God. My conscience is clear. And, by the way, your conscience isn't my conscience. And so this assembly needs to be characterized, this family of Christians, by people who honor one another's consciences before God, which means there may be differences amongst us that we need to work through and listen to and understand better. We can't just put a slogan over that thing or ignore it and pretend like sweep it under the rug. Unity in the body requires work. It's an uphill battle, fighting against sin every step of the way. And the way we climb that hill, it's like a sand dune, is with a conscience, mindful of God, with a conscience for God. But why on Palm Sunday? Well, you got me there. This isn't a Palm Sunday sermon in any traditional sense, but listen to this. When those children were crying out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know what they were saying? The king has come and set us free at last. That is the cry of a freed slave. Hosanna, Jehovah saves. That's the good news. And so though I didn't plan it that way, I think it works out pretty good for a Palm Sunday sermon. Now in my opening remarks, I commented how Frederick Douglass escaped, slave turned preacher, journalist, statesman, encouraged us, to work within the church and within the Constitution for change. He didn't want to throw out the Bible. Neither did he want to throw out the Constitution, by the way, which is an interesting comment in light of some current debates about the Constitution being fundamentally racist. I'd commend you to read not one but two of Frederick Douglass' greatest speeches defending the United States Constitution. Well, Frederick Douglass had a very personal opportunity to work for change within the system, if you will, when he wrote an open letter to his former slave master. Here's how Wikipedia puts it. In September 1848, on the 10th anniversary of his escape, Douglas published an open letter addressed to his former master, Thomas Old, berating him for his conduct and asking after members of Douglas's family that were still held by this man. He still held children, brothers, and sisters. But at one point in a graphic passage in the letter, Douglas turned his tone and asked Ald how he would feel if he, Frederick Douglas, came to took away Ald's daughter and members of his family the way that Ald had treated him. Yet, in the conclusion of the letter, Douglas shows his focus and goodwill, stating that he has no malice towards him personally. His conscience is clear. Douglas asserts that there is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for comfort, which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I would consider it the highest privilege, he says, to set you an example of how mankind ought to treat each other. Oh my goodness. Could you do that? 
Could you set down your oppressor at the table and give him or her everything needed for their comfort? And as Douglas so masterfully does, mix in that convicting, godly, biblical accusation, which wasn't guilt and shame inducing, except in as much as he's guilty and he should be ashamed. I mean, the, the Christian wisdom, the fortitude that it took to write this letter blows my mind. And as it turns out, he had the chance to set that example. In 1877, when his former enslaver, Thomas Ould, was dying on his deathbed, Frederick Douglass paid him a visit, and the two men reconciled. In spite of all that Douglass had experienced and his family, the visit also appears to have brought closure to Douglass, and this is so often true when you're a victim of oppression. There's an open sore that refuses to heal. May God help us with these things. Douglas had closure, not because he finally got strict justice. We know what strict justice would have been. Thomas Ald should have been shot, executed, judicially executed. It should be said, though, that Douglas's years of agitation, and that was his term for it, he was asked by a young, uh, up-and-coming sort of uh, warrior for, for race rights, if you will, in the 1800s. What should I do, Mr. Douglas? His comment was, agitate, agitate, agitate. So he wasn't a, a rollover, he wasn't a pushover. He did have some sense of closure from both, I think, that meeting and the forgiveness that took place there and his agitation that the plight of blacks in the 19th century was slowly, too slowly, but slowly improving. I hope that God grants us this sort of grace. This is grace from God, I think, given to Frederick Douglass. We need this same grace in our situations today and forgiveness. May God help you forgive someone who is oppressed or even uh, beaten you. And while you must seek God's wisdom in terms of what justice should look like and how to change your circumstances if you're still in this situation, may God help you not to change your circumstances at the expense of true Christian humility. May God give you empathy. I've mentioned this. God wants you to show empathy towards people who struggle. You too were an immigrant an alien, a stranger. You were oppressed at some point in your life, surely. Surely you were a victim at some point in your years on this planet. Surely someone has sinned against you and you had no opportunity to seek appropriate reconciliation. Based on your experience, show empathy. Get out of yourself. Get out from between your two ears. Listen to the story of someone else who has been through these things. Hear them and bear that burden with them. Finally, be bold. May you choose to submit to suffering. Choose to submit to suffering. It involves a decision of the mind. Not as a stoic where you're just going to endure it, 
but as the Lord's calling, which verse 21 says, this is to this you have been called, and we'll get to that more next Sunday. Choose to submit to suffering as your distinctive Christian service by your patient endurance of unmerited abuse. You're the opposite of a slave. You prove yourself to be truly free. You become one of God's noble. You become a prince or a princess at the table of the king. And the irony is that while you should be receiving benefactions from your oppressor because you are royalty, you, in Christ-like service, are giving benefactions to the very one who thinks he has the upper hand. You are proving that you belong not to your master, but to the Lord. And you're giving your master or your boss or your tormentor the thing that they can never buy, which is the gospel of God's good news. May God help us as his free people boldly live out our freedom as we do good in all circumstances. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you that in venturing into a difficult topic, Lord, we hopefully have been challenged and encouraged in our faith. Your word is sufficient, which is to say, Lord, it speaks to all the needs of the hour if we would only read it and listen to it and apply it. So, Lord, may your word not fall flat and fall on deaf ears. May it not just settle in our heads as something interesting or curious. But may these final three challenges resonate and may we not give ourselves rest until we put your word into practice in our lives, showing that we are truly your free sons and daughters, free people, God's free people, freedom in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.